Welcome to the show with the coolest cats in African football. I'm your host, Zain Nabi. I've got to be the funniest cat around. We've got Courtney Fries, our former Premier Soccer League winner. He's got to be the biggest cat. Ahmed Youssef, our North African football expert and the editor of Kingfoot.com. He's definitely the poshest cat. And then we have our stray cat in Yawunde, Cameroon. Francis and Quain, to the coolest cats in this business. How are you all doing today? Very well, Zane, Francis, Ahmed. Um, lovely to be in your company again, gentlemen. Lovely to be here. I'm just really happy I'm not a meerkat, so. <laughs> very, very happy to be here. <laughs> Miss my brothers. It's a, it's a joy. <laughs> so let's do this. And no comparisons. <laughs> very happy to be here as well. Um, obviously, looking forward to talking about uh, this, some of the football that's happened uh, over this weekend. Not all of it. Well, you know, we've got a lot to get into. We might reference Tottenham and West Ham. What an amazing game. And Francis, despite being a stray cat and a meerkat, you are also a sports media executive and marketing guru. You're our man who wines and dines with the finest. So how could I forget my intro without giving you the big sell? But in today's show, let me run through the menu. We have an exciting show. We have an interview with Nigerian legend and Arsenal icon, Kanu. He talks to us about what made the Arsenal Invincibles Invincibles. But what you will find more interesting is how he wants to leave, leave a legacy with his heart foundation that helps people in Africa who need it most. We'll also take your fan questions. We'll go to the old mailbag to end the show. But there's only one place to start today, and that's in North Africa, where we've had two Egyptian teams reigning supreme in the CAF Champions League. Ahmed, tell us what's going on in the Champions League. And specifically, let's start with the Red Devils, Al-Akhli, and their clash with Widad Casablanca. Yes, so uh, as you mentioned, this weekend was the uh, semi-finals of the CAF Champions League, which have been postponed uh, now for a couple of months. Um, and uh, CAF decided to play the two games together in uh, Casablanca. Uh, and on following days, the first one, as you said, was Al-Ahli against uh, Moira Casablanca, uh, uh, where Al-Ahli uh, eventually won 2-0. Um, the game uh you know, started uh, quite uh, interestingly with the uh, Wadad centre back uh, miss controlling the ball and within three minutes um Al Ahli through Afasha had their, their first goal um as he went through on goal and, and scored um before even the game had really got going. Um uh, and this is Pitzer's first uh calf game for Al Ahli. Um so it was interesting to see how he was gonna Set up the team, and 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 uh, you know, Allah were very well organised. Um, they continued to, do, to you know, dominate, creating a lot of chances, but also good, really good defensively. Um, but then, just before half time, uh, the uh, goalkeeper Mohamed Shinari fouled um, the uh, the wide out striker, and uh, you know, they had a penalty. Um, but in miraculous fashion, he saved the, the goalkeeper, made amends for everything, and saved a double penalty. Um, the first penalty and a rebound, you know, just after um, to keep Alahi still in the game, and uh, eventually in the second half, um, uh, AJ had a shot um, uh, which was uh, which hit the, the hand of the uh, wide Casablanca defender, uh, and uh, Alahi 
scored their their the resulting penalty um, to win two 0 away in Casablanca with uh, very two important away goals. When you look at Al Ahli and you look at Pizzo Mosimani who's come in, the very successful South African coach, the man who built a dynasty at Sundowns with numerous league successes. Has Pizzo started to fashion the team in his image? What are you noticing with formations, with selections, Ahmed? Yeah, so obviously still very early and he, he hasn't had the chance to really give every, you know, give his whole ethic into the into the team. But what we can initially see from the start is the first and major thing is that he's played the 4-4-2 formation, which um he didn't do before. Um and it was interesting to see how you know he played the right midfielder um and, and as a more of a on the attack he was literally you know as a striker, you know, um but when he didn't have the ball, he came back deep and was really helping out defending um in that 4-4-2 formation. And um the main thing that I really saw you know, a big, big difference um, was the way that he defended. They defended very well organised. They got players behind the ball and, and they countered really well. Um, and it was you know, really good to see how organised they were defensively. Now, the other Moroccan team, Roger Casablanca, also suffered a loss in their first semi-final leg against another Cairo Giants, Zamalek. What did you make of that game? Yeah, so... Uh, the other, the following day, it was two two clubs from the same cities in the same stadium playing again against each other. Um, and this time round, it was kind of the opposite actually. Um, Raja Casablanca, who uh, essentially dominated for for ninety minutes uh, against, um, but 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 couldn't really score a goal. They had sixty seven percent possession. They created fifteen shots on goal, um, but weren't you know clinical enough. And and Zemelik, um scored. Uh, that single goal, um, which uh, was from a, a corner, sorry, it was from a cross, um, and it was headed into the, to the back of the net. And, and I felt um, Zemelik were lucky. Um, as you can see behind me, there's I've got my Zemelik shirt on, on my wall, but I have to admit it was a very poor performance. Um, defensively, it wasn't very well organised, and it was a lot of last ditch uh, getting back and, and trying to clear the ball. Um, but uh, fundamentally, they Zemelik now go into the uh, into the second leg with that you know, huge away goal, um, which is which is crucial. Um, and it's it's kind of those games where you don't play well, but you get the result that are really important. If I was to put you on the spot, we've had the first legs that have gone on. Looking ahead to that one-off final, who do you see making it through? Well, um, you know, if you look at the first semi-final between. Uh, Wider Casablanca and Al Ahli. Um, it's going to be very tough for uh, Wider. Um, Al Ahli have now won the last eighteen home calf games, um, so it's kind of it's going to be a very impressive thing for them to kind of try and and, and beat them in Egypt. Um, and even just the way that Pizza has set up, you know, if he does exactly what he did in the first game, um, then I don't see a way for him to come back. So I'd, I'd say Ahli will, will will go through from that game. Now the second game, um, it's I still think it's very open. Um, I still think um, Roger Casablanca, you know, they just had to just find that back of the net, and there's only one goal in it. Um, Zemelik weren't that good, um, so it's it's very tough for that other semi-final game. But having said that as well, uh, Zemelik's home form is phenomenal. They've they've only lost two home games in the last two years, so it's going to be tough for them. Um, if I was going to say who I'd say see in the final, it'd probably be uh, Zemelik. I'd hope it'd be Zemelik against Al Ahli, um, and and if that is the case, uh, Kath have said that the final will be played in Egypt, which would be fantastic. 
um, for, for you know for the fans that who might be allowed to go to the game. It certainly would be a spectacle and something that everyone in world football, in North African football, in African football would, would watch because that derby, one of the most intense in the world. Well, we'll leave our CAF Champions League football there. Um, we promised you an interview with Super Eagle striker Kanu. That's what we're going to deliver on now. He's had a glorious career in football. He won two league titles with the Gunners. He won a Champions League title with Ajax. He won the UEFA Cup with Inter Milan and a gold medal at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta with the Super Eagles. So many beautiful moments. I'd like to go around the horn now and ask for you guys to tell me what was your favorite Kanu moment. He certainly is, as a player, a complete highlights reel. Who wants to go first? I guess I could dive in. If it's from memories, I remember being at Stamford Bridge, I think 99 or, or something like that, or 2000. I can't remember exactly when it was. Um, and th they were coming back against Arsenal in a game. Well, I, Arsenal was coming back against Chelsea in a game, and he takes the defender down to like the, the corner flag or something and leaves him for dead with a nutmeg or something. But you know, like when you're at the stadium and you can't fully grasp exactly what the move was like. And the whole place like exploded. I think Arsenal either drew or won the game or something and he scores a hat-trick. But all we were concerned about was getting home as quickly as possible to watch the game on the match of the day so you could actually see what the move was that he did. But Kano had so many of these moments. He used to... I used to hate the words they used to use to describe him like lazy or languid or... But it was his style. Like he would get there while the other guy would be running and you seen the feet moving. He just had these graceful strides that got him there just before you. And he could, uh, amazing play. When I think about him, I get a little bit woozy. But yeah, that's a special memory for me, that game against Chelsea. But I don't like Arsenal. So uh, now that I've just remembered I don't like Arsenal, I don't like Canoe. It's very rare that you find a creative player with a size 15 boot in football. It, it just doesn't go, you know? And Kanu was very tall, size 15 boot. He comes on as a substitute in a North London derby away at Spurs. Sorry, Ahmed. And Patrick Vieira is standing on the halfway line, and all he does is he just... Like with a pitching wedge, just clips this ball up to Kanu, who's standing on the 18 area. Chris Perry is standing right behind Kanu. You know, you've got to be tight. You've got to be there on top of him. Kanu drops the ball at his foot, then flicks it over the defender. The defender is standing, he flicks it 180 degrees behind him, spins to the right, and volleys it into the bottom corner. Up to today, I've never seen a goal like that. Size 15 boot quality. Absolutely amazing. And if you get the chance, please just go on YouTube, Kanu. Go on YouTube and see the man's skill if you never saw it. And that hat trick against Arsenal when Francis was in the stadium in 1999, the three goals that he scored for Arsenal that led to Arsenal winning 3 2 
is honestly one of the finest displays you'll ever see from a substitute in football. The impact he had and the influence. Sorry, Zane. Can I just, you know, because as I said to you, I can't believe you asked me for one moment. <laughs> because I'm going to go back to Francis's moment. The ball gets, as Francis said, they went home and watched the game. It was pouring unbelievable when he scored the third goal. Right? He, 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 he dummies Ed Dehoy on the corner line. He dummies him and then hits it into the top far end corner while um, LeBeuf is standing on the goal line with Marcel Desahi. He hits it over their heads. It's unbelievable ability. Truly really unbelievable. Unbelievable ability. You remember to... detail like crazy. That's he impressive, hit... Courtney. And I was thinking, I was thinking, pass, pass. And he, oh, come on, man. You got to be born twice to do something like that. Sorry. <laughs> well, guys, thank you for sharing your favorite Kanu memories. But it's now time to hear from King Kanu himself. For full transparency, I pulled this interview out of my personal archive. As I spoke to Kanu in September 2018, when I was out producing on a television shoot. But the interview is pretty timeless. We spoke about his career. We spoke about how important his work is off the field now with his Heart Foundation, changing lives and helping those who need it most. But first off, we started talking about what made the Arsenal Invincibles invincible. So, Carney, first up, let's rewind a little bit. You've won the Champions League. You've won the UEFA Cup. You've won two Premier League titles and you've won Olympic gold with Nigeria. But does anything come close to that invincible season in 03 04? Um, of course, all those are, they are good. Um, but when you talk about the invincibles, uh, that's a team that, uh, with characters, with leaders, um, uh, with big hearts, uh, they don't want to, to lose. Uh, they give everything, and that's why they can. Uh, yeah, succeed in uh, doing what they did and uh, appreciate being part of uh, that team. What was it that made the Invincibles Invincibles? What made you have that belief that you could go through the season? Is it something you spoke about or was it we're going to look at it one game at a time, that type of approach? We have winners in the team. We have, uh, like I said, people with big hearts. We have leaders, captains. Uh, it's not only the coach um, giving out instruction. You have uh, players as well saying what we want to want everybody to do. And the good thing about this team is that um, there's a big competition going in, healthy one. That uh, even if you're injured, somebody's out there to do your job. And um, we are like one family, and uh, we have this mentality that. Um, we don't lose, and that starts from the training. And when we come to training, every uh, training, nobody wants to lose. And uh, we took that on board. And uh, all the games we are playing, we had this belief that we are good and uh, we can win any team. Uh, even if it's a bad day, we can still get the result out there and then uh, keep going. So from there, and if you're not doing well, the good thing about it as well is that if you're not doing well, somebody will not hit you on the head and say, come on, let's go, what's going on? Who hit you on the head? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you have Tony Adams, you have Vieira, you have, you have a lot of... It's not only... If, even if they are not doing well, it doesn't matter how old they are, if they're not doing well, I can also talk to them and say, hey, 
Remember, we always say this, we have to win. Come on, let's go and win. So that uh, friendship and that uh, family bonding and that uh, belief and uh, mentality is strong, spirits is high. Uh, we are winners, we don't want to lose. Uh, so it works very well uh, with that team. So, Kanu, something that you're involved in now, post-football, is your Heart Foundation. What prompted you to start your Heart Foundation? Just remind our viewers. It's 1996, you've just got your dream moved to Inter Milan, and then what happens? Um, yes, the medical checkup in Inter Milan, and which I did. And, uh, I went to the medical and then finished that, uh, which I've played two games, two friendly games with them. And the third one, after the medicals, I said I have to wait. And then suddenly I start hearing um, from uh, national TV and <laughs> newspapers that I can't play football anymore because they found out something uh, not good with my heart. And uh, it was not really good the way it went out, but um, that was the truth. And uh, the club have to come to me later and uh, say that uh, they had uh, issues with my heart, uh, have problems, and uh, I don't think they can allow me to play football. And I said, okay. It was big and it was tough uh, because uh, that's uh, what I love doing. And uh, all my years, all my life, I've been a footballer, I've been playing football, and suddenly winning the Olympics and then uh, signing a new contract with a big team. And then suddenly that comes up and then it was like, pooh. What's, what am I going to do? What's going on here? Did, did you think you'd ever play football again when they broke the news to you? No, because if a doctor is saying that to you, then it means that uh, it's finished. Eh? What are you going to do? So a lot of things we keep coming to, to your head. Um, a lot of thinking, a lot of uh, decision to make. And, uh, but first thing I did, I just called my uh, family and I keep praying because I believe in God. Mm -hmm. I keep praying that... Uh, I will still come out from it. Um, with what they said, it's not like if they said that to you, just believe and then said, okay, okay, I have it. No, I was like trying to go from one hospital to another to verify, to be sure what really is wrong and if um, it's okay or not. But after going three different hospitals in different countries, then I found that, yes, um, yeah, I do have issue or problem with my heart. How was it explained to you? How would you explain it to the listeners? What was the what was the heart problem? Uh, the aortic valve was not closing very well, and then if, if the aortic valve was not closing well, it means that when it pumps out the blood, there's a leakage and it keeps coming back. So and the more it keeps doing that, and the more you're active playing football, the heart keeps getting bigger and bigger because it's now overworking, and which is tough for any uh, footballer or anybody who is doing sports. And um, I thank God that um, yeah, I didn't um, end up dining on where I'm playing football. But at that time, it was not something that I, I believed or I agreed that uh, was wrong. I was like, what is going on? I just finished the Olympics. I was 100% fit. Why am I getting this now? But after going around on uh, um, Cleveland, Ohio, um, that's where I did my operation when I went there. They advised me and they said, yeah, you're young, and if you're young, we can operate you, and then you can go back playing football. I said, ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> so you don't need me to even um, start thinking, and I said, yes, I will do that.
and I did that. So, but after going through the checkups, I know how much I spent in going from one hospital to another, and then the operation itself. Thank God that uh, Morati, who was the president of Inter Milan, and the club was really behind me. So I was like, who? People back home, what are they really going through? Because you have, I'm as an adult, I know the pain. And then what if you are a kid? How do you cope with that? Not only being a kid, if the parents doesn't have the money, what's going to happen? It means that the person will be gone. Uh, and now you have lots of hospitals in Nigeria and Africa. How have they helped people who have heart ailments? Um, of course, hospitals are hospitals. They're not going to just open uh, the doors and say, come, I'll operate you and you go. No, definitely they will do the checkups, which you have to pay. They will do the operations, which you have to also pay. So the foundation was established now, first uh, to, to raise funds, um, help the less privileged kids who are out there, knowing that they don't have, but you can do that for them and then um, support them in one way or the other. But one thing I need to know, let people know is that in Africa, especially in Nigeria, if you are sick, it's always typhoid or malaria. So when somebody is sick, even if he's having symptoms of heart problems, we still say it's malaria and typhoid. And people in the communities that don't even have the awareness or know the awareness of what's going on, they end up treating the wrong thing than to treat the, the problem, which is heart problem. So we are trying to create that awareness, let them know, educate them, at the same time, then help them to, to get the operation done. How impactful has been your cardiac centers and your, and your hospitals? Have you been happy that they've been able to diagnose people correctly and save lives? Um, yeah, one thing we have to know here is that um, the first three kids we operated, I uh, can remember a story which I've been telling people the first kid uh, was Nations Cup 2000 in Nigeria in my hotel. The mom heard about Kanha Foundation and she was like trying to bring the kids to me to show me that, uh, see, my daughter, my daughter, uh, <laughs> you know, have a problem. How can you help us? So I was going to the lift to go down to, to have my lunch and then I met them on the lift and uh, immediately the little girl fainted we have to rush the girl to the hospital wow rush the girl to the hospital and thank god we saved her then and i promised the mom that the first uh, kid i went to operate is going to be her daughter and true true the first three kids operated in uh, london she was one of them and um, from there on um, the foundation have done 542 operations so which means we have saved 542 lives and uh, we have now 200 on the waiting list. So um, the dream is big, and it's always good to dream big, is to have hospitals in Africa, starting from Nigeria. Um, if you ask anybody, cardiac hospital costs a lot. <laughs> and um, um, for us, we can still achieve that. Uh, the dream is to have the hospitals, because when you do have the hospitals in Africa or in Nigeria, uh, it's going to be easy for us. Instead of spending money to take one kid to India with the parents, flights, accommodation, feeding, we can do it in the country and save three, four kids in the expense of one, So, which is huge. Uh, the difference is too big. And um, uh, the 200 on the waiting list, the more we even talking about this game, 
the more and more people are calling from Africa, from everywhere, that their kids have this but they cannot afford uh, to help them out, can we help them? So the number keeps increasing and when the number keeps increasing, the pressure keeps coming to, to us because people forget that I'm a footballer. They always call me as if I'm a doctor and then they are telling you to come and operate their kid or save their kid or do this for the kid. But all the same, it's good. It's good cause. I love doing it and I want to do more. So uh, our next step is to build hospital. Our next step is to clear off the list that we do have and then we progress from there because when we have steady hospitals in Africa, it can help us a lot. Connie, you've won many trophies as a player. You're also doing a lot of good work for people suffering with heart problems. When people look back at Kanu the man, how would you like to be remembered? Um, football is talent I was born with. and uh, Thank God he gave me that. I didn't throw it away. I did well. <laughs> um, achieved a lot of things and won trophies. Um, so definitely uh, people are going to remember Kano uh, for all the good things they have done in football, winning trophies, representing your country and uh, continent. Uh, but one thing that is there to me is uh, the foundation. So I will leave and when I'm not here anymore for people to remember that Kano was uh, somebody who came on board to save people with heart problems. Amen. I think that's a wonderful initiative and I certainly wish you all the best with that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That was Kanu, the former Nigerian striker. We often talk about giving back after you've played the game and Kanu is certainly making a difference. Francis, this is very much in the spirit of the Best of Africa Awards which you organize. Yes, it is. And um, it, it's truly amazing to hear him speak. You know, when we think about um, the lives he's actually touched, 542 operations already having taken place, a waiting list of 200. Um, it, it's it's mind-boggling just to think about it, but it's also really humbling when you think that uh, this gentleman could have chosen to spend his time and his resources on, dare I call it, the trinkets of life, he could have simply said, I want to make sure my wife and my kids and my immediate family have all the extras that life could throw their way and spend his money on those things and these perishables or luxury items. But to give your time and your resources to causes as big as these, um, to support things that go even beyond your national boundaries, because he speaks of his desire to go beyond Nigeria, you know, and even the analysis he puts in when he says they need to be able to look at how they build capacity locally to be able to deliver these operations locally. So like as opposed to flying out a child with the mother and father and maybe one other sibling all the way to India for an operation, the money that they would spend on all of that uh, could do three operations locally. So building up capacity locally. These are the kind of things that inspired us to have the best of Africa to champion these causes, to highlight how many of these players are actually doing these really noble things um, that very rarely actually make it into uh, the general conversation. Uh, they don't really get much much print time. They definitely don't get much airtime, whether it's on TV or on radio. But a lot of the lads, this is where their hearts and heads are. And very often, you find that they have really complex structures that support them 
behind the scenes. And even the people involved in this spaces are very rarely people who are known other than the athletes or the artists who sit at the front. Um, but I think it's truly commendable. commendable. And I love him even more for what he's doing and the length of time, the tenacity, because you could do it, it could be a flash in the pan, but right now you can see that it's his purpose. It's, it's what drives him. Uh, you look at his social feeds and he's always got the hat on or he's always got a t-shirt on. He's championing the cause every opportunity he gets. He's not talking about football. Uh, he knows he's a footballing hero to many, but he uses that cap to turn people's attentions to more pressing issues. Um, and I think it's truly commendable, and I can't help but encourage many others to give more airtime to these aspects of some of our athletes' lives. I've got a rare story which I'm going to share with you guys. I've got a friend of mine who's doing some very good things in education uh, in across Africa and has now gone back to South Africa to, to continue his work in education, left England. And he met Kano. I don't know how he met Kano, but he met Kano. And he and Kano are involved in education on some level. But he didn't know the level of football Kano played on. So as I'm ahead and he's ahead, he was speaking to me about, hey, no, and this, I've got this guy that's come on board. Um, he's got a few contacts, and we're trying to really start education off in the country. I said, uh, do, tell me about it. And he said, He's a Nigerian guy. I think his name is, uh, he couldn't say his name. He said, uh, can, can you, I think. I said, oh, okay. And then he sent me a video of him talking to him. And I said, hey, do you know who that guy is? He said, no, no. But he's my friend. We, he, he works with me. I said, no, that's a superstar guy. Now, he didn't know who this guy was. Because firstly, he's not a football person. So he doesn't know. But just the fact that Connell, you know, you, you, you would expect people with that level of pedigree of fame, not to just, they, they would let themselves be known, the audience they're going into. My, my friend didn't know who he was. A testament to the humility of the man. He didn't know who he was. And I'm going to share the video with you guys. But when I told him, listen, this guy's a big hitter, mate. A big hitter. He said, no, he could never have played football, this guy. I said, no, he didn't just play. He wrote the book. <laughs> He certainly did and brought a lot of joy to a lot of us. And even though we might support rival teams, he was just oh so good to watch. Kanu, thank you for the memories. Kanu, thank you for your work off the field. Here at On The Whistle, we salute you, sir. Now, before we end our show, it's time to take some fan questions. That's right. It's time for our community to join us around the bride. Scott, a little bigger. Um, given we've just heard from an Arsenal legend, I'm going to start with a question from Sammy in London. Sammy writes in asking, what impact do you expect Ghanaian midfielder Thomas Partey to have at Arsenal? Party after party after party after party. Oh yeah. The guy <laughs> going to be mad. He's like one of those players who I just think was built for the Prem. Um, as long as this gentleman doesn't have any injuries and Arteta plays him in his preferred position as in the quintessential box-to-box -box midfielder, I just might start supporting Arsenal. Nah, that won't happen. So uh, let's go back. He'll be all right. He'll be average. He'll do okay. 
Might score a few goals, but he'll get a few tackles in. Might break a couple of legs, and there will be an after party, after party, after party, after party. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm speechless. Who wants to come in after that? I didn't know Francis could sing so well. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, Thomas Pass is a, a yeah, he's a, he's a great player, and it's a, one of those annoying things because I wish he came to my club um, and not Arsenal um, because I think he's new very well. Um, I'm, when I've watched him at, at Atletico, he's been fantastic, um, just dominating that midfield. Um, great passer. He's kind of what what they needed. Um, but along with that is a bit of sadness because El Nani had been playing so well at the start of the season. Um, and probably didn't deserve to be uh, to be kind of now a second fiddle, but that's the way it is. Thomas, you know, obviously, the great player to kind of replace him. Um, from my point of view, Zayn, um, what he looks like and sometimes what he plays like is two different things. You would expect him to be a very robust defensive midfielder, but he's a very quick thinking, quick ball moving player. Doesn't really dally on the ball, but also plays through the lines, not just side to side and moving it but plays forward through the lines. Uh, I was very impressed with him uh, during their Champions League uh, two games against Liverpool where they knocked us out. He was the player of the two, of the two games. Uh, just with his, with his engine and his ability to move the ball quickly from defensive midfield into attack. I think Arsenal have got another, not just another good player, another player that can keep the ball well and also in tight situations, but they've also got that resilience added to that as well. And this is what Arsenal have been, uh, it's been the, uh, the Achilles heel in the past, the uh, ability to be strong, but also clever as well. They had too much of a soft center. They won't have that with Thomas Button. Very true. I think he really is that Patrick Vieira player. He really has the ability to be quick on his feet, thinks two, three steps ahead of the ball coming to him, understands the game, has has what uh, Gladden Huddle usually calls a feel for the game. So he's always around the ball before the ball gets there. Like, he really is an amazing, amazing talent. And kind of like what Ahmed said, the truth is I do just wish he'd turned up at United and not at Arsenal. But he's, he really is one of those players who I don't think any opposition fan would not respect. They may not love him, but they will respect him. And he will bring so much to the game that is the Premiership. I think he's one of those characters who will carry the game to another level and make other players in his position. Uh, he could redefine it for another generation, I think. Lots of love and respect for Thomas Party on the show. Um, and great analysis, guys. So, Sammy, thank you for your question. Um, we hope that did uh, go some way in, in answering it. I know that you wanted me to give Courtney a special mention. Uh, Courtney... You still are the king of the Spirit Cup. You're also muted, Courtney, so we can't hear you. Uh, excuse me, my apologies. I don't think that title is just for anybody. You've got to be a special, a special underachiever to win that level of award. And that's exactly <laughs> who I am. <laughs> Quality, a special underachiever. Quality. <laughs> Courtney. You'll always be our overachiever. Don't you worry. All right, guys, moving on. We've got two more questions. Uh, this time, we have a question from Freddie. Freddie's from my hometown in South Africa called Durban. And this is the voice note he sent over. 
Um, how's it? Uh, yeah, just a quick question on what the panel um, feels a post-COVID African football uh, is going to look like. Obviously, the um, virus will affect um, poorer nations, nations with less resources more than it would affect others. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we've, we've seen in the last few weeks that um, lots of big uh, African companies are stopping sponsorships because they have their own pressures in terms of finances. Yeah, I think um, let's hope that um, the impact is not too negative. But I think there is going to be a fallout from COVID for African football, African leagues. Um, yeah, maybe maybe some of the panel can just paint a scenario how how, how they think it's going to look in maybe two years' time. Francis, since you are a mover and shaker and you move in the space, to sum up, what do you think the impact of coronavirus will be on investment in football, on sponsorship, on business, and obviously uh, the running of leagues across the continent? I, for one, tend to like to see everything as an opportunity. And I think um, COVID, uh, for the purists in the game, I think this is an opportunity for the game to return to being a sport. That's how I see it. Um, if we're talking about the absence of structures and uh, like our, our caller mentioned there, um, speaking to investments being taken out of the game because of companies not particularly wanting to invest because they have their own challenges. We never have really had high investments in our local leagues, uh, bar South Africa and Egypt and maybe a handful of others. Uh, it has been a challenge. But I actually believe this is an opportunity where we could have, there is a need for entertainment. There is a need for distraction. Um, what football has come to serve in places like the United Kingdom over the last few weeks um, has been just that. The reintroduction of the Champions League went a long way to getting people to stop watching the news and feeling less perturbed spiritually, I think. Uh, if you see the rally that many people are making uh, towards a return of, to some participation at Stadia uh, across Europe, the Germans have arrived at a stage where I believe they now have even up to 10,000 and in 40 to 50,000 capacity stadia. So you're talking about a, a quarter uh, capacity at, at stadia, and they're looking to expand on that whilst, of course, in the premiership, uh, the conversation is still being had. Um, I think people want, need to have a distraction. And so I see an opportunity for the African leagues, domestic leagues, in a country like Ghana, for example, I know the league is about to resume in, in in Cameroon as well, the league is about to resume. But you look at places like Tanzania, and um, they did when they did uh, Simba Day, for example, and you had 80,000 people at the stadium and a massive artist entertaining people. People need that release. So maybe the conversation has to be about how we, we own our game again, uh, how we use the infrastructure that exists. So our, our caller was asking about where we see it in two years. I think it's an opportunity for us to go back to the drawing boards and maybe come out with stronger propositions that can satisfy an audience that has an appetite for the game 
And yes, we put health at the center of it, but in the same way, we're having conversations about why Africa hasn't suffered, dare I say, as much as the rest of the world with COVID. There is something to be said for our youthful population. It's our youthful population that will play the game and, and it's our youthful population that will attend the games in stadia. And we need to figure out how best to have football serve as an engine for not just distraction, but an engine actually for change, an engine for positivity. And I think we can. And I think there are a few clubs that we're already speaking with who are thinking along these lines. And so when you look at what's happening in TZ in particular with Simba, it's really encouraging. And I think a lot of other clubs are looking to them and saying, how do we copy this model? So I'm very optimistic personally. Right, guys, lots of positive thoughts there. But as we end the show, we have one final question. And this question comes from Precious. He's based in London, and he asks the panel this question. Why has the African continent not won the World Cup? Why? Despite all the talented players produced. I think this time, just as we started the show, we'll start up not with you, Ahmed, and then we'll bring it around to Francis and Courtney. Previously, um, we've seen kind of African sides going far and then not really winning in, in the final stages. It's quite you know difficult to pinpoint um, you know performances in World Cup and whatnot. But it, to me, it seems more of a um, a more you know a, a back something behind the scenes, something a, a bigger picture. And we've, we've previously talked about you know Project Africa and wanted to build you know something in Africa that where you know, players are playing there and, and coming from from Africa and and not you know, going to Europe and having a strong African football league. And we talked about you know, the Champions League. And I think that's kind of where things stem from. Um, we've not, you know, we've had excellent players and teams and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, um, it, it, you know, from, from looking at some of the North African sides that have uh, gone to the World Cup, they've had stars, but they've never had, you know, that team that, that can really contend to winning it. And I think that stems from, um, the, the, the you know the level of football isn't at, at that same level as the European game, and um, it, it you know it needs that it needs time. Um, but you know at the same time, I look at the South South Americans, and they've won obviously a lot of a lot of the World Cup, and, and their leagues aren't strong. But um, I feel that kind of they have a lot of players who've been playing abroad and and, and creating that that, um, that that top level of, of football. If I may jump in, um, I agree with you. Um... Uh, but I actually think one of the fundamental challenges we have in our space is um, targets. And I don't think we really have had national teams or federations that have set out with an objective to win. Uh, very often, our challenge is just to participate. So it's such uh, an accomplishment just to make it. Uh, making up the numbers is like starting point. It's like amazing we get to go to the world cup whether you get beaten four nil and six nil and you go back home it's like a world cup participating player mr x as opposed to saying world cup winning player mr y um and i think it's this celebration of mediocrity that i think we need to move out of some of our federation spaces and from the mindset of even some of our players because now we even have some players who make it a pro and it's almost enough that they play in Ligue 1 or that they're playing in Serie A or that they're playing in the Premier League. Not that they're winning the Premier League, not that they're winning Ligue 1 or they're winning Serie A. They're just playing there. 
and they could be playing for a club at the bottom of the table. But when you see them when they turn up for the national team, there's almost a celebration around these gentlemen who are coming in from second division in Hungary or or a championship club uh, out in the far dredges of, 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 of the United Kingdom. <laughs> and we almost celebrate them just for being abroad. Um, and then we look down at the local talents who may be playing at the highest level locally because they haven't yet gotten on the plane to go play in one of the lower leagues abroad. And it's this celebration of mediocrity that I speak to where we must be able to have structures in place that identify really, really high standard objectives like winning the cup and making that a mission. But in most of our federations, uh, it's good enough just to participate. And that's what is usually on their KPIs. It's do I get to qualify this team for the next World Cup? We have an opportunity in 2026 when we will have nine African teams participating. And I believe if we have projects in place with federations, we have nine years, call that eight years, in which we can have teams that will compete, not just to be there, but will compete to go in to win. I genuinely believe there's a new generation of African players and management that if given the opportunity, will not be coming in to say, I just want to be here. I don't know if Sadio Mane will be of the age to still be playing in the North American World Cup, but players like him are the example of players who remind me of people like Samuel Leto. There have been many of these before who want to win, but there are never enough of them in the team who desired more than just participating. So that's my two cents. There's very little I can disagree with. I love the fact that we talk about targets and, and the target is before leaving to win the tournament. I love that. Um, but because there's been so many stories and issues and we just go back to a previous interview with Dalron Buckley where he said the night before a game, 12 o'clock in the evening, they call the players out to talk about money and uh, the local players will earn two-thirds uh, of what the uh, international players. So the targets need to be there and, and, and the mentality of everyone wanting to go and win the tournament, not just take part in it. I think it's, uh, we spoke about mind shifts. We spoke about having the right type of leadership in place. We are going to challenge for this trophy. You must remember to win the World Cup is one of the most difficult things out there, but it's actually only between seven and eight games. Along the way, there is an element of luck. There is an element of luck. Now, I'm going to point to another sport, the South African Rugby World Cup 2019 team, right until the final, played the worst rugby we saw the whole way and got all the way to the final and won. So why? But they went there with the idea of to win the tournament. We won favorites. I think we were fourth favorites to win that tournament. I know this is football. But you got the right management thinking we can win the tournament. And until people stop thinking, well, well we're going to go for a good holiday in another country and enjoy it on government money, that mentality, if that continues to exist, nobody is going to win the tournament. We've got a lot of good players, a lot of exceptionally good players and managers. But the mindset needs not only to be from the players, the coaches, it needs to be the three areas. Management, 
players, coaches. Guys, thank you very much for sharing. Our show has come to an end. Uh, to our audience out there, to our community, to the listeners, thank you for sending those questions in. We love to hear from you. And if you're sitting out there and if you're listening and if you're going, you know what? I want to be sitting around that, Bri. Please get in touch. All our content details are in the show notes. But I'll even give them to you here now. If you want to hit us up on social media, Instagram and Twitter, really easy. OTW underscore podcast. And if you're on Facebook, just search for the On The Whistle podcast page. You can also hit us up on WhatsApp. Again, find that in the show notes. And of course, if you like the show, leave a rating and a review. In fact, if you do it twice, even better. It'll help more people find the show. That's where we'll leave it for today, guys. I'll catch you on the flip side. Stay well, you cool cats.